So the trickster for me became this other figure that I later found out is all the more powerful because it's rooted outside of the West. The trickster is a figure that is of extreme importance in West African folklore and West African spiritual traditions in the form of deities. And so if you start to really inhabit the trickster and what it represents about a different understanding of the world, you're actually rooting yourself not only in a way that displaces whiteness, but displaces the West. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the PowerPlant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. One of the enduring legacies of the social construction of race is that it holds a reductive and constraining power over our lives, limiting how we see others and ourselves. Race informs how we value or devalue humans situated along a racial hierarchy and determines outcomes related to our health, income, and environment. How do we rethink racialization in ways that lead to new possibilities? And how can we free ourselves from its strictures? How do we acknowledge the real and life-shaping impositions of race while also working to dismantle them? These are some of the weighty questions taken up in the art of Nigerian-Canadian visual artist Kosi Ndebe, whose practice is inspired by post-colonial theorists France Fanon and Edouard Glissant, as well as feminist perspectives. Ndebe's practice is invested in unraveling the process of racialization and rethinking the politics of Black visibility. Moving across installation and lens-based media, Ndebe creates works that shapeshift and transform to reveal a glimpse into new ways of seeing and understanding Blackness. Kosi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. Kosi, in your artistic practice, you seem to be interested in challenging the viewer to see the world differently, to see their positionality in the world differently. I'm thinking in particular of your 2019 exhibition titled, and it's a long title. <laughs> I want you to know that I'm hiding something from you since what I might be is uncontainable. Did I get that right? Yes, exactly. And that exhibition, by the way, garnered you, I think, a lot of attention. Is that fair to say? I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> Could you tell me about it and the ideas that sort of underpinned it? Absolutely. It's uh, probably one of my favorite works to date. And my first experience really working with large-scale installations. So it was at Axe Neo Set in Hall in 2019. And it's a two-part installation that's really focused on the politics of Black visibility. And so when we talk about Black visibility in Canada, it's often terms in terms of a discussion of hypervisibility and an invisibility. So this notion of Blackness being this absented presence. And so the exhibition plays on that in two different rooms. The first room is actually the one with the podium. And so really to kind of describe it quickly, it's this kind of quite barren room with a podium in the middle. Over top the podium are these sheets of red plexiglass and then onto opposite walls in the gallery are these red banners, and that's it. And what that room really is, in a way, is a game of hide-and-seek that the viewer is invited to partake in without actually knowing. And they don't know that what they're looking for is a representation of myself, a self-portrait of sorts. 
a lot of the work is actually rooted in time that I spent thinking about phenomenology through the work of Frantz Fanon and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And so the fifth chapter in Black Skin, White Masks, which is called The Lived Experience of the Black Man, is actually Fanon's response to Maurice Merleau-Ponty's kind of notion and kind of understanding of phenomenology, which is this kind of study of the lived experience. And Fanon believes that Maurice Merleau-Ponty doesn't kind of consider race sufficiently in the way that he talks about this kind of bodily schema that allows people to interact with their environment. Similarly, a lot of feminist phenomenologists critique the understanding of the bodily schema because it doesn't take into account gender. And so there's this one article that's called How to Throw Like a Girl or Throwing Like a Girl that talks about how even the act of throwing a ball when you inhabit a particularly gendered body is totally different. The way you move, the way your body moves is totally different. And so for me, and for those um, feminist phenomenologists in particular, hesitation is this way of kind of interrupting these naturalized ways of perceiving the world and perceiving how bodies engage and act in the world. And so they see hesitation as this very generative affect that allows for new openings. And so I'm constantly trying to use hesitation as a way of enabling people to be in their bodies differently, to inhabit a space of discomfort, right? And in that discomfort, I'm thinking about the ways in which my body is uncomfortable constantly in spaces, right? There's this focus on embodiment that I can play with when I can get people to move around in a space and only be able to perceive things when they're located in a particular area. And so that installation can only be fully experienced from one single uh, position within the entire gallery space, which is atop that podium, which the viewer doesn't know is fashioned after a slave auction block. The auction block, yeah. Yes. And so in order to experience the work, you have to put yourself in this position of total objectification and dehumanization. And basically what I'm doing is engaging with feminist standpoint theory, including Black feminist kind of interpretations of that theory, to understand how particular forms of knowledge are generated from particular situations of marginalization. And those forms of knowledge and marginalization allow you to have a perspective on the world that is unique and that teaches you about how power operates in a way that cannot be understood from the center. What are some of the reactions that you see in terms of people who are actually encountering the exhibition? So that one was fun because, again, phenomenology is this methodology where you can use it as a research methodology. So a lot of my works are actually hypotheses. Like I'm testing, like, how are people going to react? I have an idea, but then you see it play out. And so I imagine my body as one that feels uncomfortable within gallery settings. And so if I see a podium, I don't know if I can go on it, right? right. And so I'll navigate it, I'll walk around, I'll feel confused, and I'll, I'll can leave. Can you touch it or not? Exactly. Yeah. My engagement yeah. would be very minimal. Right. And then I got to the opening, and people who don't have my lived experience... <laughs> <laughs> were right on in it, right? They're, as soon yeah. as they, they got there, they were on that podium. There were entire <laughs> families on that podium. <laughs> wow. And so I was just so surprised. And I remember there was one colleague of mine that I had invited, a Black man, who never went on that podium. Even when it was busy, he didn't want to go. Even when people had filtered out, he did not want to go on that podium. So I don't know if something in him just felt like this feels, you know, like something's happening or there's something being done here. But definitely there was a a difference sometimes. And so that for me was really generative. So that time I didn't have a didactic. And so the audience never knew 
what they were actually standing on and what it represented. Right. The second time I showed it, I did add a didactic and it did help with a, an understanding. I do think that my practice is one that is pedagogical in a way. And so that learning is important. So in future iterations, I will say something. But what was also interesting is that, again, it's this game of hide and seek. So from the podium, looking through the sheets of red plexiglass, you can decipher these hidden messages and images that are on the banners. Mm -hmm. And so one of the hidden images is this image of a spider. And so people would go on, see a spider, and then be like, it's a spider. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what's the connection? Yeah. And so what that spider was, was a photoshopped image of my limbs brought together into the image of a spider. And so right. it was a literal self-portrait. And so this whole time, I'm setting it up for them to find me. And when they find me, they still can't see me. And so I was playing a lot with the ideas of opacity from Edouard Nissan, wanting to kind of think about invisibility the way we talk about it in Canada. It's this forced thing. What happens when we take invisibility as a form of withholding? where rather than being seen in particular lights or not seen at all, we made a conscious decision to withhold parts of ourselves and to show ourselves only ways that we can understand. I'm glad you brought up Glissant because I wanted to talk a little bit about his work because I know it's been instrumental for you. And I know that the, the concept of opacity is frequently cited in Black studies among Black artists. And there's different readings, I think, of, of the term and, and maybe even misreadings. So when I think of opacity, I, I think of spaces in which we're not necessarily concerned with whiteness. We're sort of among ourselves. We're doing our thing and not setting up this binary or this dichotomy versus, you know, blackness versus whiteness. And we're afforded a kind of freedom in that inward looking perspective. But I know there's other readings on opacity, which is about, as you said, preserving ourselves dwelling in spaces where, in a sense, it's almost like we have refuge mm -hmm. in, in our own Blackness. But I, I want to be clear on, on what what's your reading of the term? It's actually, it's a little bit of both. And so initially, what I was trying to do was to hide myself in order to find refuge in a way. So right. the ways in which I'm seen are too kind of black or white or too kind of reductive. And so rather than be seen on those terms, I'd rather remove myself. I'm hiding, right? So that's mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. first part of it. I want you to know that I'm hiding something from you. Like I'm literally mm -hmm. hiding myself, but mm -hmm. I'm also revealing myself, right? And so the way in which I reveal myself speaks to that first interpretation of opacity, which for me, it's a question of like, okay, you want to withhold yourself in order to show yourself in a way that you can continue to recreate yourself constantly. Yes. How do you represent yourself in order to achieve that? And for me, that was the trickster, right? And so the trickster is this figure that appears in the writings of women of color um, writers, Toni Morrison, Gloria Anzaldúa, right? As this kind of figure that is multivocal, that is just multidimensional, that exists on the borderlands, right? That is this liminal figure that can't be boxed in. And this comes from the trickster being a folk kind of figure that teaches what is moral by doing immoral acts, right? And is constantly at that edge of like whatever binary that you're trying to discuss, be it good versus bad, moral, immoral, etc. But in that position can either uphold those binaries or destroy them altogether. And so it's a very kind of like tenuous position to be in and a very liberatory one as well. And so initially I was looking and, and trying to 
I root myself in that idea of the trickster because of what it could do in terms of the search I've had for years Mm -hmm. to define what Bell Hooks calls a radical Black subjectivity. And she talks about radical Black subjectivity as a form of subjectivity that transcends this kind of binary of good versus bad representations of Blackness that, as you mentioned, are always rooted in whiteness always a response to whiteness. There are negative right. portrayals of black people. We need to respond with positive portrayals. There's too much emphasis black excellence, on all this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Too much emphasis yeah. on black pain. We need to show all the positives, right? It's this constant like back and forth. And so when I initially started creating work, it was actually portraits of black women and it was paintings and like oil pastels, etc. And it was all kind of like rooted in that desire to present in a positive light. And I realized it wasn't doing anything because, again, it was always in response to whiteness. And so the trickster for me became this other figure that I later found out is all the more powerful because it's rooted outside of the West. Right. The trickster is a figure that is of extreme importance in West African folklore and West African spiritual traditions in the form of deities. And so if you start to really inhabit the trickster and what it represents about a different understanding of the world, you're actually rooting yourself not only in a way that displaces whiteness, but displaces the West. And you take this up explicitly, correct me if I'm wrong, in a more recent exhibition titled The Explosion Will Not Happen Today, where I believe you are using uh, Anansi, the, the trickster, to create these sculptural pieces uh, to explore some of these ideas. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that exhibition that you had in Calgary? So that exhibition was a bit of a resting point where there's a lot of ideas I've, I've been exploring and materials and processes that I wanted to bring together in a way that helped me kind of further solidify what it is that I'm trying to put forward. And so what I'm trying to put forward is a kind of idea of a trickster aesthetics in terms of like what the trickster affords in terms of new representations of blackness that are grotesque, that are both beautiful, but also kind of difficult to look at. And so those 3D prints are exactly that. They're these really beautiful kind of like figures that I'm going to next year be expanding to into life-size and kind of larger sized sculptures out of different materials. And so they started off with that Photoshopped image of me as the spider and wanting to bring that into the 3D to really embody, right, that figure of Anansi as a hero, right? And so wanting to, when I do it next year, it's going to be cast in bronze as this material that, you know, signifies a certain level of stature, of significance within particular cultures, including Nigeria, right? Always Mm -hmm. wanting to root back in that particular specificity. And so there's this thing of the trickster and like how I can represent myself in ways that are difficult to kind of box in or contain, but there's also an ethics of the trickster. And that's what I've been really interested in. And it actually appears in another work that's also included in that show in Calgary, which is the work around cassava. And so the trickster, if you look at Anansi, the trickster spider, the trickster in Ghanaian folklore is a figure that allows the culture to actually uphold or actually critique particular social norms while still upholding them. And so within the stories of the trickster, Anansi allows you to poke fun at those in power and to kind of disrupt 
what is seen as moral by engaging in immoral acts. But at the same time, Anansi in those stories never fully defies that, right? At the end of the right. day, there's an upholding of the social hierarchy. There's an upholding of the, of the norms. And so it gives space for dissidents, but absorbs it at the same time. Let's talk about space a little bit in relation to Bell Hooks. Because yeah. I know Bell Hooks has been an important thinker for you. And I have often included her seminal essay, uh, Choosing the Margin as a Space of Radical Openness in courses that I've taught. And it's the one piece that's by and far resonates with mm -hmm. students in amazing ways. And in that essay, Hooks encourages Black people to think of the margin as a site of resistance and, and one of power. And I'm wondering, given that encouragement, how have you taken up those ideas in your overall artistic practice? Oh, absolutely. So my focus has really been on knowledge production and even just tying it back to this idea of how the trickster transforms. And so there's a particular reading of it that is upheld in Ghana. But as the trickster or as enslaved Africans are taken from West Africa to the Caribbean, that reading of the trickster transforms altogether. And from that marginalization, that position of being part of the plantation system, the trickster becomes this kind of symbol and representation for resistance. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a world that is totally kind of, there's a total upheaval of your world, what is deemed ethical changes. Right? right. And so these acts of stealing, of cheating, of killing, of poisoning all become mm -hmm. ethical acts. Right. And so all of a sudden there is this kind of engagement with this figure in a totally new light mm -hmm. that inspires poisonings, which is what I kind of depict in that one piece around cassava. Right. And so there's a way in which when you're centering what is occurring within those spaces, those positions of marginality, your understandings of the society around you are totally kind of shifted. And what makes sense, what are valuable or valid courses of action are then also kind of, you know, turned over. Yeah. And so there's a way in which centering those perspectives, centering those histories kind of unveils these different understandings Mm -hmm. of the world that we find ourselves in, but also what is possible for us as ways of resisting, of pushing back, of refusing, right? And so even just looking again at this work of the way in which uh, cassava was turned into poison, mm -hmm. when you center the experiences of enslaved people, of indigenous peoples, and the ways in which they tried to make sense of a world in which they are now enslaved, in which like they are losing their land, losing everything, anything becomes a weapon, including mm -hmm. cassava, including the food around you, including your natural landscape. And so those are the kinds of histories that you can unearth when you spend time thinking about those forms of marginalization and how people survived. Kosi, you've produced a lot of work, um, I'll say, in the last six years, looking at your CV and just all of the exhibitions that you've been a part of. Uh, you're on this incredible pace of, of artistic production. I'm just wondering what's sustained you during all of this uh, and, and what keeps you going? That's a really good question, because all of that was while working full time in government. <laughs> yes, yes. Which I wanted to talk to you about next, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit wild. It's um, and all of that is in addition to I've curated two shows. I've taught a class on art and criticism at the Autumn mm-hmm. School of Art. It's all been a lot. What sustains me? I mean, I feel like when you're an artist, you're just it's something you can't let go of. <laughs> and I've always been motivated by. You know, I turned initially, my background is in economics and then my master's in in sociology. And so I've never studied art. My introduction to like cultural studies and critical race theory and all of that came from friends who were studying that when I was in my undergrad and who were kind of teaching me a little bit. And so I started reading Bell Hooks, a little bit of Fanon, et cetera. And I didn't have like, you know, my peers in like a classroom setting or professors to engage with. And so I kind of understood and spent time with that work through my practice. That was the way of making sense of it. And so for me, that turn towards theory was a turn towards like trying to understand and make sense of my life, my lived experience, the world around me, and a way of kind of better understanding that theory was through my practice. And so theory, lived experience, and kind of visual arts production have always gone hand in hand. And so it's always been something that's come quite naturally as a way of processing for me. And so that's how it started off initially. And that's where that focus on the process of racialization really comes from. And also this kind of, like a lot of my work in the first kind of couple of years was really focused on the process of racialization, the objectification of the Black body, but on the flip side, also trying to reach towards that kind of radical subjectivity that Bell Hooks um, speaks of. So Mm -hmm. kind of working with my own body in order to find that subjectivity, finding different ways of portraying myself, etc. And then there's a transition that happens afterwards. And this is around uh, 2019, Mm -hmm. where I'd been working in government doing engagement with Indigenous communities. And all of a sudden, having to go into communities and realizing that the identity that they saw me as kind of representing was one of a federal representative. Colonizer. Of colonizer. (laughs) I was the colonizer. Right. Yeah. I remember this one time there was there was a session that we had organized for with ITK, so Inuit Tabarit Katanami, and um, it was a session where we had brought folks from the four various regions, Inuit regions in Canada, and they all came down to Ottawa, and we had a white facilitator, and the white folks, the, the kind of federal employees, kept talking over mm. the Inuit folks that we had invited. And at some point, the facilitator was like, I don't remember the word she used, but it's a word that means white people. And she said, you guys need to shut up. And for me, there was no space other than like Inuit or white people. And so I was obviously being brought into that category. Yes. yes. So there's no nuance. And I right. think that's part of the issue of like how we talk about um, settler colonialism in Canada, right? For black people, there's a there's a tendency or a desire to f- slot us into just being settlers, but it really erases so much of the different ways in which we come to be on these lands. And so I felt like my lived experience was being erased right. by that glossing over of different identities. And that was happening also from Indigenous folks where, you know, there is anti-blackness there and I could feel that sometimes. So it just felt like there was so much happening and so much that I was experiencing. I had no words for it. And so I couldn't talk about it with, within like my job, obviously. So, and I couldn't really talk about it through my art practice. So I curated 
And so I initially started off with a, an exhibition I curated that brought together eight Black and Indigenous women artists in 2020 at the Carleton University Art Gallery called They Forgot That We Were Seeds. But then from there, I became really interested in all of these really beautiful moments that happened throughout the process of curating that exhibition, not only like the actual exhibition itself, like which was cut short by the pandemic, so right, right. <laughs> just too bad. But the process itself was one that was so demanding, but beautiful. Like I developed really, really beautiful relationships with the artists, including Catherine Tekpani, who lived in Ottawa at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was in Ottawa. And so we developed a really strong friendship with Catherine. Uh, one of the forms of public programming we organized was myself and the, the gallery, we organized a private dinner of Black and Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people. And it was something that seemed so small, but like, oh my God, every time I even think about it, because so often when I would have experiences of gathering with Indigenous folks, it would be in government, in like government settings, right? right? So I'd be grouped in with government folks and like my identity as a young Black woman, a Nigerian woman who's displaced in a particular way. And that that is not divorced from colonialism, right? I, my own experience and relationship with colonialism was always erased. And then on the flip side, the other times I'd be around Indigenous peoples like in gathering was at visuals, right? Vigils for people who had experienced police brutality, Black or Indigenous and it was always in public. It was always being consumed. You could feel the eyes on you. Right. And so I never had experiences where it was grounded in this mutual care and it was private. Right. And so it was just this beautiful, beautiful gathering uh, where we had a sharing circle initially. And it was just an outpouring of just like sentiment and it was people just grappling with things around their identity and just wanting to share because we don't have that space you know black and indigenous women and two-spirit people you don't you don't see that like in an an intentional way and i had hired co-facilitators um muna muhammad and cole poplinski and they were the ones like i give up power because i felt like coming from government the ways in which i've learned how to facilitate it's extractive you go in, you set it up, you ask questions, you take the answers, and you go off you and like develop you your much. policy your recommend uh, you develop <laughs> your policy recommendations exactly. And so I had to put myself in a position of learning, unlearning, and learning. And so that dinner just blew my mind. And when I went and I did my master's at uh, the London School of Economics in 2020, I did it on the way in which the coming together of Black and Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people creates these spaces of epistemic resistance. And I say that because in those moments when we were gathered, there was a way in which we were inhabiting ancestral practices Mm -hmm. of ritual, of ceremony. And there were ways of being that we were engaging with that were non-Western, that we were mutually supporting one another in upholding and inhabiting. And so that was also part of like when I was doing all that engagement and I was being exposed to Indigenous worldviews, the seven grandfather principles, the seven generation uh, principle as well, all of these kinds of notions, all my relations, I realized like there's a way of, of holding on to your knowledge and and knowledge that isn't Western. And why don't I know what it means to have an evil cosmology? Why don't I know anything about where I come from and the knowledge that comes from there? Did that then uh, further your interest in Anansi? Yes. And so not only that, but it furthered my interest in language. And so that's where that language question comes in. It's actually a direct result 
of that work right. because when I was doing the master's um, dissertation, I organized a focus group and I brought together some of those women and two-spirit people. And we were talking about how we can support one another or how we can reconnect with our ancestral ways of knowing and being. And one of the main themes was through language because we talked about how language actually holds a lot of that knowledge. And so one of the ones that like my mom was in part of the conversation, part of the focus group, and I was joking around because it wasn't part of like my focus guide or Mm -hmm. topic guide. I was joking around with my mom and saying that like, you know, you're constantly misgendering me and my siblings, right? Mm -hmm. You'll call Mm -hmm. me him and you call my brother she. And it's Mm -hmm. like, she Mm -hmm. was explaining because it's not natural for me to like speak with genders. Like the Igbo language has none of that. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden it's this kind of reckoning with how like the language itself speaks to a different understanding of gender than what was imposed by the British. And even though my mom now is like, you know, adopts and like is, and is part of this kind of British understanding of gender and all of that, the language she speaks makes it very clear that that understanding is actually foreign to her. And so the language becomes an archive in a way that like, you know, my mom may have lost that understanding, but it's still there in the language. And you can dig into it as an archive. Yeah, exactly. And so we started sharing Anishinaabe Moen, instead of gender being the most important thing, what you want to know is, is an object animate or inanimate. And so a raspberry is inanimate, a strawberry is animate. And that's how you structure your language, right? Amazing. Right? <laughs> and Amazing. so I, I was mean, like... We, we could go so deep into that, yeah. you know? Um, and how have you brought the language aspects into your work more recently? Is this a direction you're taking? Yes. So directly coming out of the research and a project I was invited to be part of uh, in London, I created a video work with Catherine Tikpani, so one of the artists from the show, called The Ancestors Are Meeting Because We Have Met. And it's a video work where we're both attempting to speak to one another in our mother tongues. And so I'm trying to speak to her in Igbo. She's trying to respond to me in Inuktitut. But we can't because we don't know how to speak those languages. Because in Nigeria, like my, I knew how to speak Igbo, but it wasn't kind of prioritized, and we lost it, especially when we moved to Canada. And you came here as at a very young age, at five, five. And so I lost my language that way. But you can see that it was lost within a generation because in the video, my father's there helping and coaching me through these translations. Similarly, Catherine can't speak her language for a number of different reasons that have everything to do with settler colonial policies in Canada. And so we have in the video our, our kind of like parental figures there to help us try and learn the language and communicate with one another in those mother tongues as a way of connecting with our ancestry, connecting with our ancestors, but also giving the possibility of a different future where we can teach those languages to our children. I'm wondering, given all that you've described and and discussed, particularly the different roles, your role in government as an analyst, your role as an art. When did you start thinking of yourself as an artist then? When did you sort of say, hey, I'm doing art. Yes, I'm, I'm in government, but I'm an artist. When, when did that happen? It started a little bit when I was doing my undergrad at McGill. But then it really, I, my practice, I, I say, starts at 20, in 2017. Because that's when the ideas, the way of working, the understanding of myself as a professional artist, it really starts then. What are you working on presently? And is there anything you'd like to highlight? 
Yeah, I have two major solo exhibitions next year that I'm super, super excited about, like really excited about because so 2019, I was able to do these large scale installations. And since then, I've been playing a little bit more with materiality and with concept and kind of refining certain things. So now next year, I get to go back to large scale installation using everything I've learned. And so I have one solo exhibition at Saw Gallery in Ottawa. And so that one is looking at, again, this history of cassava. And it's going to include growing crops in the gallery as a way of speaking to this difference between plantations and plots. And so the plots of land that were given to enslaved Africans to grow food on. Uh, the way in which there's this kind of inheritance that connects enslaved Africans who are, are the ancestors of Jamaicans now Nigerians living on the continent or in the diaspora, and then the Tainos, right? The um, original inhabitants. Yes, and Arawak. Exactly. We're all connected through this history of cassava, but it also extends beyond that. And so this kind of interesting inheritance that shows you these kinds of relations, um, but also this kind of sharing of knowledge, right? And these kinds of solidarities with the natural environment, with plant life, in order to, again, make sense of the the world in which we find ourselves and find ways of refusing and creating a new world. And what's really exciting, I get to go to Jamaica for seven weeks. And so- Is this a residency? Yes, yes. And it's going to be Maroon Town. So I get to explore maroon history, cassava in its actual natural environment. I am so stoked. (laughs) That is going to be incredible. Yeah. On the show, we we like to ask our guests to put questions forward, which we then ask other guests that appear. And so I have a couple questions that were shared by other artists, and I'll just throw them your way. Uh, The first question is, do you think visual art can incite change in people? Yes, absolutely. And I think of this uh, quite seriously because I worked in government, right? And government is meant to be the place where you can enact the most change because you're talking about like I've worked on on files that are like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I've often gravitated back towards my art practice because it's made the most transformative change for me as an mm. individual. But also I can see the way in which it elicits change in others in a way that I can't do with government work. And so because I've worked in policy, I've worked in economics, I've worked in like, I've been exposed to different ways of being a change maker, but right. I always go back to art. It's because it can do something that those other things can't. And, and what do you do to ensure that you keep growing and developing as an artist is it is it the theory that you turn to is it the relationships what is it that ensures that you keep developing in the way that you have since 2017 it's because i'm not afraid of failure (laughs) i have tried a lot of different things and i try them in public right so oftentimes it's not that i'm testing something in my studio and it's i have i've been shown it if i've tested in my studio it's out in public And so there's always a risk and I embrace that, but it also means that I can grow at a much faster rate. And so I'm constantly expanding the ways in which I can communicate my message. By being so open with your practice. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, uh, Kosi. Before I let you go, I wondered if you could now pose a question, can be about anything, that we'll ask a, a future guest on the podcast. Okay. I have one I've been thinking about. How is your artistic practice a spiritual practice as well? Kosi, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Neil. This has been amazing. 
Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopao Mumu.